We'd like to give a big shout out to Jonathan Lambert and everybody supporting us over on our Patreon site. And you too can also support us there by going to patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-L. This podcast is sponsored by Uncanna, trusted natural solutions. Uncanna is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncanna team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncanna is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code mentors the number four MIL at checkout at uncanna.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. This is the Mentors for Military podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I got to tell you, Nikki, I saw your uh, background, your bio and everything. And when I saw that you started off your military career as a corpsman in 1996 in my hometown, Milton, Florida. Really? Yes. (laughs) So I grew up there because my dad uh, was in the Navy and we got stationed there for his last assignment and he was part of VT3 there actually. So when I saw Whiting Field I thought, "Oh man, 1996-98 time frame, you had a sham job. There was nobody there. Everybody all the active duty military for the most part other than instructors and students, you know, they left." Yeah, well, it was one of the primary sites for the aviators. Yeah. So the whole base was actually all mostly officers. So the enlisted were outnumbered, I think, five to one at least for officers to enlisted, <laughs> yeah. which is, you know, usually opposite. Um, and what was funny is that so it's my first duty station and you know, I was expecting this horrible barracks or whatever. Yeah. And the Air Force was training there as well. And when they saw the barracks initially, I guess they were like, Nope, this isn't gonna be good enough for our people. So they completely redid the barracks and I ended up as an E1 staying in like, it looked like a hotel oh, and I nice. had my own bedroom, my own bathroom in my room. We had a, a shared kitchen space. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something like they allowed you to live off base and they paid for rent and everything because so many of the aviators, once they learn that they're going to Whiting Field and everybody thinks that Naval Aviation starts at Pensacola and AS, it's actually Whiting Field where you get your fixed wing or and then you go on to either Rotary or you go on to something else. And so many of the aviators end up looking at uh, the surrounding area and see oh my god pensacola beach for walton beach navarre and so they head off and get them a cool beach condo or something right on the water and they yes. commute to whiting field every day you know back and yes. forth yeah it wasn't that great but i would say, so we didn't have a um a place to eat really for us because it was all officers and everybody had i guess per diem or whatever they were getting. So there was a restaurant, the officer's club on base was where I ate for free every day. So I would go over to the restaurant and I would order whatever I wanted to breakfast, lunch, and dinner, give them my card. And it was, it was free of charge. So it was like eating at a restaurant every single day for free. And that was, that was my <laughs> chow hall. <laughs> oh my God. So they take that immediately out of your uh, pay and everything though, for your meals rations. Well, I didn't, yeah, I didn't get my, I didn't get the normal BAS gotcha. rate, yeah, right. but I was, you know, living basically in a hotel, eating at a restaurant for free. And that was, that was my life as an E1. Yeah. <laughs> and about an, uh, what, 45 minute drive from the beach. So if you wanted to experience beach right. life, yeah, beautiful white sands, uh, crystal green, blue water. And it's, uh, yeah. it's a beautiful area. There's no doubt about it, but it's, it's definitely Milton itself is kind of like a two red light town. Um, yes. Very poor area, definitely, you know, had its troubles and stuff, especially because of Whitingfield going away the way it has, you know, by um, the enlisted forces. I mean, because when I was a kid, Whitingfield was booming. So Milton now has pretty much had a rough time because it's uh, not as big as it once was. It, it was huge back in the day. 
Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. It's, hard, no <laughs> it's hard to believe, I know, but it was uh, much larger than what it is. But So you spent two years there, and that's when you went on, and did you have to apply for the um, search and rescue medical tech, or how does that work when you change your skill in that way? So, yes, that was a separate, what they call a Navy enlisted classification code. So I had to apply to it. Um, it was considered a C-school. And when I asked to do it, my career counselor looked at me and was like, no, females can't do this. And I was like, why not? <laughs> it's not a combat area. It's search and rescue. I don't really understand. And I was looking through the instruction and I'm like, it doesn't say that no females are allowed. Like if you looked at the seals or whatever, it, it says, you know, it's open to men only or whatever sure. the, the wording was. Um, and she was like, no, it's, it's, it's not open. And, <laughs> and then she said, well, there aren't any females that are doing it. And I said, well, that doesn't mean it's not open to women. Right. <laughs> because nobody's dumb enough to do it like I was. But um, <laughs> so I said, can you go, can you go back and look? And it was funny because I was an E4 at the time and she was a E6 and I could have just said, oh, okay, she knows what she's talking about and walked away from it. And my whole probably life would be completely different now. But, and this is what I always tell my junior guys, like don't always take, the first answer as the right answer, you know, make sure that you research it and get it in black and white too, right? You want to make sure that you read the instructions and, and people are going to say what they say. They think they know it, but you know, as we all know throughout our careers, most people don't know what they're talking about. That's so. exactly right. <laughs> most definitely. You decided to go off and, and do this and stuff. And I think you had shared with me, you were the second female, not the first, right? I wasn't the first. There was definitely one before me. I'm not sure if there were any others before me. When I was doing it um, for, I know the first probably four years or more, I was the only female in the Navy at the time. Um, but there had been one before me, I believe, and she went on to do IDC school um, as, as far as I know. Okay. So we were a small community. There were only about, gosh, I think at the time, maybe 50 of us. Um, and then being, you know, I was, I was younger and I was only a female and I, I really, I didn't have any idea what I was getting myself into, to be honest. <laughs> I'm one of those personalities. I see a challenge and like, oh, let me try it. I mean, I wasn't a big fitness stud or, you know, like gung ho as far as like fitness goes and just, just really didn't know what I was getting into. So, <laughs> so tell us about it. What was that like, especially going through as a female and you're walking in blind into this situation? So had you had a chance to really prepare for it or were you like the average person where you walk in and you have no clue and you're walking in? Yeah. Okay. I figured as much. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was, I was very average and I, I did it. I ended up doing like a familiarization flight with one of the guys that was in Pensacola and he was trying to explain to me, and, and his unit was over water. So the, the corpsman or the medic usually stays in the helicopter when you're over water. And I said, okay, because I was terrified of heights, by the way, too. So <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, I don't have to jump out of the helicopter and go into the water. That's, that's cool. Um, so did that. And then when I got to my first, the, the duty station I picked was China Lake, which is out here in California, out in the desert. And we are the station star for a lot of the surrounding, like the mountainous areas and you know, you got lots of hikers and all that stuff. What I didn't know is that when you did mountain rescue, the medic or the corpsman goes down for the patient, which meant I had to get repel qualified. So when I got to my first, I didn't know any of this until I got to my first duty <laughs> station. And one of the guys was like, all right, we're sending you to repel school at Camp Pendleton. And I was like, well, why? <laughs> And he was like, well, that's, well, we got to get, that's part of our qualification process. And I was like, no, 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 we, we stay in the helicopter. And he was like, no, over <laughs> the mountains, we go down. And I was just like, well, what if I don't go? And he was like, well, then you don't get qualified. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to repel school. So that was my venture into that. And first time off the tower, shook the entire tower with my legs because I was terrified. But once I did it, it was, it was fine. And then. You must have conquered your fears because we'll get in a little bit later as to some of the other stuff that you've done over your time. But obviously, you got over that fear at that school. I I did get over the fear, yes, and I, I actually love repelling now. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's you know, and then after doing some of the other stuff I've done, it doesn't seem that exciting anymore. But yes, I I definitely conquered those. 
You think about how far you've come, though. I mean, in that time frame, you look back at some of the early experiences and you go, oh, my God, I can't believe I even thought about that way, you know, or looked at that situation in that manner or whatever the case may be, you know, for sure. Yes. Yes. Going through it, how were you treated as being one of the first females? Not that, it, you know, I, I want the whole show to be on that, but I think it's, it is interesting to hear it from a very early period how that may have been. As Corman, we were attached to the branch medical clinic, and then we were, I guess you would say, loaned out to the squadrons for our job as a uh, search and rescue corpsman. So I had to check into the branch medical clinic, and the first day I sit down with the officer in charge, who is a lieutenant commander, and again, I, I'm, I'm new for it at this point, lieutenant commander, talking to him, checking in, and he says, you know, I don't think females belong out there, so I'm not going to let you go out there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I didn't really know what to say, right? You're yeah. Just, I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm checking in with the guy in charge of the the entire place. And I was like, well, I, I have to go out there because there was a qualification process. I had to get so many hours in the helicopter. I had to check off all my, you know, all the, the syllabus. I, I mean, there's a lot involved and it usually takes anywhere from six months to a year. And so I said, well, I have to go. I mean, that's my job. I have to go out there. I have to get qualified. I'm still in the training process. And he was like, yeah, but well, I don't think females should go out there. So I, <laughs> I walked away from that and I was just like, okay, I'm really, I don't really know where to go with this because, you know, nowadays we have like the equal opportunity. We have all these different, oh, sure. you know, they weren't there people then. that we can, no, they, they weren't. I, I did not know who I could talk to. Um, my saving grace was the master chief at the Whiting Field Medical Clinic. He was a great mentor for me. Um, was heavily involved in the dive community and also this, he knew a lot of the search and rescue guys. And so I called him and I said, I don't know what to do. This is what happened. <laughs> I need help because I'm not going to be able to get qualified if, if I continue on this, this track. So he made a few phone calls. He knew who to call. Um, our enlisted technical leader, who I'm still great friends with to this day, he ended up making, I don't know what they did. They made some phone calls and uh, the officer in charge was like, okay, well, I'll let you go train, but so it was me and two other guys that were out there as as Star Corman. The two guys got to do whatever you know. They got to go do their job, and nobody questioned them. Nice. <laughs> it. Nice, yeah, yeah. For me, he put the stipulation of you can go train, but you're going to take over one of the departments here in the clinic. So I was in charge of all the immunization clinic, which was pretty large in the family. You know, we we saw active duty and family members, and he was like, you're going to stay on EMT duty as well. So. Technically, when you're in a training status, you're not supposed to have all these extra duties because you're trying to get qualified. Um, But yeah, so he put all that on me and, you know, the two guys didn't have to do any of that. (laughs) Who were already qualified, by the way. Oh, wow. Um, So yeah, so I dealt with that. And then uh, one of the guys that I trained with, he wasn't very ecstatic um, having me there. The other guy, you know, got, we got along great. We, to this day, we, we get along, um, but the other guy made my, my process a little bit difficult, too. So between him and uh, the officer in charge, <laughs> it was it was a challenge. But, you know, I like challenges. So. Well, looking back on that, do you kind of see that as really a pivotal point within your career? I mean, you mentioned, you know, if you wouldn't have made that decision where you are today. But were some of those hardships and things you've gone through in that early stage of the training and blazing that trail, was it something that really helped you later on in life? And um, made you maybe kind of realize that, hey, it's not going to be an easy path in whatever I'm going to do. Definitely. And I, and I think a lot of it, too, is my personality. I, I tend to, to go towards things that are just difficult. Yeah. <laughs> if, there's, if there's a fork in the road and one way is easy and the other way is difficult, I'm going to go for the difficult route. I don't know why I'm like that, but um, I've made my life probably a lot more harder than it, it needed to be. But I Yes, I, I, looking back on it, I'm grateful for all the experiences and and everything that I did because it, it does it made it gave me more confidence too. So every time I leapt over a hurdle, you know, I just I knew like I can do this. I might not be the strongest person, I'm not the smartest person, but you know, this should give hope to other people as well because you know I I'm very average. So yes, the Royal Air Force has uh, search and rescue that it um, deploys into the civilian community really but we we have a mountain rescue 
charity essentially it's not government funded they're all volunteers uh, they've got to raise the money for the equipment and things themselves um so it's quite interesting to to hear how you guys in the states have um a deployable team i guess covering the whole of the u.s nikki you said you know you're choosing over california uh, from being initially deployed uh, stationed in in florida just you know it's one course to the other so um it, it is a slightly different setup but um yeah we do have um search and rescue teams um so prince william for example when he served that was one of his roles he was a, a pilot for a search and rescue um wing so we have so the navy is a little unique in the sense that our we have the search and rescue guys that deploy and they're there for you know any of the combat areas or on the ships um but then we also have the station station stars that are there for um the surround the bases really so we were there for china lake and any of the aircraft mishaps or anything like that and then we also had eod that did a lot of stuff out there um so for any of those guys but we also uh catered to the surrounding community as well so if there are any hikers that got lost we would we would go out and look for them and we have the station Star, uh, places are Woodby Island, uh, China Lake, Lemoore, Fallon, um, and a couple on the East Coast. So they're not all over the U.S. It's mostly on the coast where the, the okay. Navy is. Um, but as far as like, we have civilian uh, SAR crews as well that are mostly all volunteer as far as the civilian sector is concerned. And then we have, of course, the, the police departments and the fire departments have their own. Okay, pretty similar to us then, I guess, in the, in the U.K., what about yes. the uh, the Coast Guard? How do you guys and what you do differ from even some of the rescue swimmers and stuff from the Coast Guard? The Coast Guard doesn't, to my knowledge, I don't think they do the inland SAR stuff like we do. Okay, so yeah. like Lemoore, Fallon, um, China Lake is all inland and uh, Whidbey Island's not inland, but it's, it's you know, it, it does a lot of the civilian community um, search and rescue. They they're pretty similar when they're on the water. I think it's very similar and we have the rescue swimmer program like they do. Um, so a lot of it, you know, the guys on the, the aircraft are also rescue swimmers. Well, you must've made an impression somewhere because your next assignment was as an instructor, as a rescue swimmer. Yes. So once again, it was me being stubborn and, Oh, Hey, I could do this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, I, I was at a crossroad at that point. I wanted to stay in Southern California and the only thing open for me in that area was that rescue swimmer billet. And it was supposed to be for an E5 and I was still an E4 at the time. Um, so I applied for it and they kept saying, no, this is, this is a special billet. It's not, you have to be an E5 because it's an instructor billet, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, this is the only one I'm applying for. So if I don't, I'm just going to keep applying for this every month. And if I don't get it, I guess I'll just, I'll get out or whatever. <laughs> and so finally, I don't know why nobody else applied for that billet because it's in San Diego. It's instructor duty. But none of us, none of the, the SAR guys were applying for it. So the, uh, I don't remember who the civilian was, but he in charge. He finally calls me and he's like, he's like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to interview. Because <laughs> he's like, nobody else is applying for this. So went through an interview. I, I guess I did well. And he said, all right, I'm going to take a chance and I'm going to bring you in. And so I ended up getting that billet. Um, again, I was only female. <laughs> I never, it just never occurred to me without, you know, being the only female, because the guys were always really, you know, for the most part, they were really great. So it's, but I look back on a lot of things and like, God, <laughs> it's kind of strange, you know, to be yeah. an entire unit. You're the only, the only female there. So, um, as the years yeah. have gone on, Nikki, have more and more females gone into those roles? There are. So right now, as far as a Navy search and rescue corpsman, um, there are definitely a lot more. I would say right off the top of my head, I can think of at least probably eight or nine of them. There might be more than that. Um, and again, the, I mean, the community is pretty small. So I would say they're, you know, the 10%, maybe 15% are women. That's pretty huge when you think about yeah. the overall percentage. You know, when you just say eight or nine, you think, oh, okay, that's very small. But when you think about the total community, that's a, that's a good sized percentage of females. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's nice. And, and I've talked to a few of them and asked them about how, you know, they're received and how they're treated. And it seems to be a lot better these days. So I think. In the time frame that you were there as an instructor, did you see any go through? So this was the surface rescue swimmer school. So this wasn't 
um, these weren't medics that went through. These were guys that were on the ship. So each ship is required to have two rescue swimmers assigned. They can't deploy without one okay. or without two of them. Um, it's an extra duty and it's usually, you know, anybody on the ship volunteers. Um, they hope that they're good swimmers so they can pass the course and, uh, they get sent to our school and it is, it's actually, I feel like rescue swimmers, the school in itself and, and just, you know, these guys are, are not talked about as much as I think they should be because the school is really, really difficult. It's the same as the Coast Guard school. Um, it's the same as the aviation one. The only difference is they don't jump from a, a helicopter. They use like the rib boats and those type of things. But uh, it's a four-week school. It's very rigorous. I went through it myself. Um, I didn't have to go, but I did because. Yeah, if you're going to instruct it, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's kind of, you know, I was there for the medical part, but I was like, well, if I'm going to be here, I should, you know, go through it and know the all of the curriculum. So yeah. put myself through that. That's <laughs> the good. only female. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, not being a PT said that was whew, that was that was a very difficult four weeks of my life. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever want to go so, through the dive uh, school or anything or do anything like that? I I thought about it. Um I Not surprised I you didn't, asking, you know, being right there. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I I thought about going, you know, it's it's one of my fears actually is diving for some reason. I really? don't really know. Yeah. <laughs> So I will conquer that at one point in my life. Are you concerned <laughs> about just the bubbles and nitrogen aspect of it or just, you know, what's sharks. underneath the water? Yeah, sharks. <laughs> <laughs> sharks. It, it just seems kind of claustrophobic to me. I know it sounds silly, but I feel like you're so you're limited to it. this little cylinder. <laughs> yeah. You know, your, your life packer. I don't know. So it certainly just, can be. I, I know that uh, from my own experience, it, it can be that way, especially if you start just focusing on the sound of your bubbles and all that. But yet it can also be very cathartic, you know, and relaxing and stuff. So around this time frame, you must have gone to school then. You must have been going to college at the same time frame at night. I was. So I was I was doing my prerequisites for nursing school. Um, wasn't really sure what direction I was going to go with that. I didn't know if I was going to get out and then go to nursing school or apply to the commissioning program, um, which obviously I ended up doing. So out of the rescue swimmer school, uh, duty station, I ended up applying and got accepted for the medical enlisted commissioning program. And so it was through that, that they, that they paid for your schooling. They don't pay for your school. They, they, so you stay on active duty and you basically PCS to the school. The school okay. is your duty station. So, you know, whatever the program is, that's what you do for the next however many years it takes you to get your degree. They pay you like, you know, you get your active duty pay, you get your BAH pay, your BAS. Um, but you do have to come up with the tuition for school. So okay. that's kind of how that program works. And I ended up using my GI bill partially for tuition and then there are, you know, different grants and student loans if you have to yeah so. i was just going to ask you about that if you were able to use your gi bill at that point so that's i'm glad you covered that because it would have seemed you know it seemed that that was the perfect opportunity for you to take advantage of that you can use your gi bill the only problem is is that you don't get the full amount because you're active duty still so the only thing it covers is your tuition so you you do end up losing out because you know when you're when you're out of the military and you use it you get the the extra money that the bah money um, when you're in, you, you lose all of that and it counts towards the months, you know, the 36 months for yeah. your GI bill. So, gotcha. so that's, that's where it kind of sucks. But then you look at it as well. I'm getting a degree, so it's going to be, you know, plus you're still getting paid your active duty wage as well. So when you're exactly. out, I guess, and you, you, you claim your GI bill, you, you get certain portions, I understand, but you, you still don't have a wage coming in. Right. So now that in this program, I guess there's no payback then. So it's not like you're out there and you have to pay back the four years. Is it, um, you know, in time or anything or how does that work? Yes. Yeah, so it's, it is a four year payback. Okay. So once you do, once you accept it, you go to school, it's four year payback when you start from your commission. So while I'm in school, I was still my enlisted rank. Um, after I finished and graduated is when I got my commissioning. And then that's when my four years started. For okay. the payback, so and it's the just total four program, years. it's just, just four years. Okay. Yeah, but they they get you that way because you know you're you're prior enlisted. So for me, I I end up getting commissioned at ten years, and then when you do four years, that's fourteen years. So at that point, they got you. Kind of like well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I might as well do the rest of it. So um, right, yeah. So <laughs> what was your your 
first thing that you started doing as an RN, and by the way, I think I shared with you my wife's an RN, so I have a great appreciation for nurses and what they do, because I know you guys have become good at solitaire and cards and poker and <laughs> stuff like that. Well, I mean, I was already good at poker because I'm from Vegas, so, you know, it's <laughs> just carried over and it helped in my nursing career. Um. <laughs> right. There you go. Uh, yeah. So my first assignment was back in San Diego and um, it was at Balboa, the big uh, naval hospital out here. And having been pre-hospital in a, in a corpsman before, I, I wanted to go straight into emergency medicine because that's just kind of my personality is the you know, hair on fire the whole time. But the military is like, no, you're going to go to the med surge ward for, you know, 18 months to two years and get your bearings, which I was totally against. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was not happy about it at all. But looking back on it now, I realize I, you need that because it's a totally different world going from pre-hospital to becoming a nurse. It's, it's just yeah. completely different. It gave me a foundation. I started out on the cancer floor which I thought in my head for some reason, I was like, well, you know, probably be like older generation because we see retirees, we see everybody. So I was thinking it'll be, you know, the older, older population. He's lived a great life or whatever, yeah. <laughs> maybe getting, you know, the lung cancer or whatever. Um, it ended up being a lot of young guys, a lot of young guys, which really got me thinking because, I mean, we had 18, 19, 20 year olds and they oh, were wow. having all kinds of leukemias. Um, bone cancers, you name it. And it just, it really shocked me. And it actually led me to like, I don't know if you've seen my post, but I, I do a lot with Hunter seven. Yes. Station, which is, you know, their research is, um, a lot based on uh, these guys coming back with, with these different illnesses. But, um, yeah, they had, they had a lot of different cancers and, you know, it, it was, it was really sad. It was really sad. Oh, I can only imagine. So what did they attribute or did you attribute a lot of it to? Do you think it may have been some of the things from burn pits and, you know, those types of things? Or and obviously this is going to be more your opinion, but. Right. Um, yes, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I I definitely thought there's, there's something up with this. There's a I correlation. Mean, yeah, it's got to be something. There has to be a correlation. And that's why I was really glad when um, Hunter 7 approached me because I've always, I've always had it in the back of my head. And, you know, now this is a, a group that's actively trying to research this and, you know, get funding to, to do more research for this. And I, it's, it's just odd to me that you have these very young guys coming back with really rare cancers. I mean, it's just, you know, pancreatic cancers and um, lung cancers, people who've never smoked before, um, you know, colon, can a lot of colon cancers, which is really strange to me. So, you know, and they've, they've determined that it's not genetically linked. So it's not something, you know, from genetics. So it has to be the outside environment. So to me, it's just, you know, there's something, there's something going on with that. But yeah. Nikki, has anybody ever researched into what the ratios are for serving members of the forces who end up with cancers compared to the general population? Mm. So Good question. Is, is the ratio a lot higher, for example, for serving members than it is do you know? I, I do believe, I don't think there's a, a good research that's been conducted with that. And that's something I, I've always wanted to know, um, especially with some of these specific kind of cancers. So uh, like the leukemias, you know, we have guys coming back. I know one guy he's had, he's fighting leukemia for the second time and he got diagnosed for the second time while he was on deployment. And one of the theories is that it's because of, you know, the environment that he was in and the, the dust and, you know, him working out or, or whatever it was. And it's like, that's, I don't know, to me, that's really odd. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think there's been a really good research conducted as far as that comparison on like the specific kind of cancers that are mm. that are going on. So Hunter 7, just as their vision statement, um, it's the foundation that will continue to be the basis and forefront leader in evidence-based practice and academic research increasingly involved in veteran healthcare. Yeah, and it's, the theory is is that you know we're we're burning all these you know if you think about the burn pits that are going on and what what they put in there you've got human waste you have you know all the different plastics and you know basically all of our garbage right that we bring over to these different sites um, and and even human body parts <laughs> they, yeah. they all have to be burned you know and they use jet fuel to burn it it's just you know that is not and and it, it's near your 
the areas that you're living in. So I don't know if you guys, you know, you've been overseas, if you've smelled those fumes coming into your, the sites that you're, you're sleeping in, you know, it's, if you think about it, that's not, it can't be healthy. Right. So, yeah, no, it's good that you, uh, you guys are, you know, you're involved in that and that they're researching that kind of information because you think about things like agent orange back in the day for Vietnam, it first became one of those things that people talked about, but yet they tried to push away the, the federal government because they didn't want to really go down that path and realizing how many that have to pay, perhaps. I don't know what the justification or reasons behind it was. My assumption is because they didn't really want to have to pay for medical care for each of these individuals if they came up with some kind of diagnosis. I think they finally got to that point, but there's still a lot of mystery surrounding that. I know my own father had a case of stomach cancer, and when I reached out, he died, and when I reached out to a, um, a squadron that he had served with in Vietnam, I was just actually researching some of his history of serving with this squadron, uh, and they told me that uh, they asked me if my father was still living. And I said, no. And they asked me how he died. And I told them, they said, you know, ironically, nearly all of the people that he served with died of some form of cancer. And it was primarily yeah. throat cancer or uh, stomach cancer that they end up dying from. So I found that right. rather fascinating. And so there is a correlation somewhere. And um, I guess it gets a little harder, though, and a little sticky to try to narrow that down specifically to one, spe you know, one thing. You know, I guess maybe like cigarettes and lung cancer, you know, that type of thing. Because then right. people can get sued or whatever right. the case, right? Right. Yeah, the guy, I think it's one of those things that <laughs> the big government is, you know, doesn't kind of like the Agent Orange thing that you're saying, you know, they don't want that to be completely out there as, you know, we put these service members in harm's way. I don't know about purposefully, but, you know, it's there could have been a better way to, to handle all of that, I think. So, yeah. So after you, again, in my opinion, <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. And and so after going through, uh, uh, the, uh, the med surge, you went general surgery, but I also want to get to just being a critical care nurse. Primarily, I want to fast forward for medical evacs. And I think, you know, this is a time period where, um, you were forward, resuscitative surgical system and quick response surgical team over in, uh, outpost pain, uh, you were also at Camp Leatherneck, those types of areas and stuff over in Afghanistan. And I'm curious to know some of the lessons learned and some of the things that you've now taken back from that in terms of training. So that was, that actually has shaped a lot of the rest of my career, having that experience. So go out to Afghanistan and I'm with a, a Marine Corps unit, a medical battalion. And we go, you know, we're part of a damage control surgery team. So our purpose out there is to be, you know, as close to the fighting as we can be. You know, if if, they, if the, the wounded person can't be stabilized, um, they bring them to us and we can do damage control surgery to further stabilize until they can get back to a more definitive care at the role three. So having that, you know, I was a critical care nurse. I helped in the uh, shock trauma platoon part, which is like the ER part where we resuscitate and helped in the OR, which was the tent. This is all tense, you know, sitting out there. We can go up and down within an hour is the theory with that, that type of unit. Um, what I don't think a lot of people thought about during that time was the transport part of it. So during that time we have dust off and then we had, um, like the PJs were all out there and we had the Mert teams. The Mert teams were unbelievable. They were so good. Uh, but with us, we would have our patient come out of the OR and they would be, you know, critical at that point. So they're not at this time point of injury, right? So a lot of these dust off guys and the paramedics, they're, they're good at that point of injury, um, but once they come out of damage control, once they come out of our tent, they're now on a ventilator, they're now on drips and all this stuff. Even me, I was a very, very new nurse to that world. So I think I spent only a couple months in an ICU when they sent me out there as an ICU nurse, which wow. blows my mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and one of the things that, you know, our, some of our leaders were like, okay, so if we have to fly a patient, who wants to fly? And of course, me being me, I'm uh, like, oh, I'll fly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like fun. <laughs> Perfect candidate, right. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I used to fly. That makes sense. Well, it didn't occur to me either that when these patients come out, they're, they're very critical and they're still being resuscitated. And so after we, we uh, did surgery on one of the guys that I think he had uh, bilateral amputations, um, when I walked out for my first uh, flight, 
I realized at that point, like, I'm, I am not prepared for this. This is not, I've never really touched a vent before. I don't know what, no, I'm hand pushing these drags. No one's ever actually really taught me this. I'm doing a little crash course with the anesthesia provider, you know, like what drugs are you using? What do I do? What's the dosing? I mean, it's just, it was just bad. And so, you know, walk out there, I'm in the back of a helicopter and I'm thinking, you know, there's a medic on board. Well, the medic is like, well, I don't do that. So that's, you know, one of the things that we didn't think about in that theater is that, when they come out of damage control surgery, they're critical and the medics weren't at the time trained to handle that type of patient. So, you know, us being this nurse, who's really not part of the crew, we get on the back of a helicopter. We're not crew. So they don't bring us, you know, the comms. I don't have any way to speak to the crew. I don't have, you know, even a gunner's belt to hook up to the, <laughs> into the helicopter. they want me to sit in one of the regular seats, but I'm still trying to resuscitate this guy. I mean, it was just all bad. And then it was a night flight on top of it. So, I walked away from that and thought, this is ridiculous that we put people through this. And I think a lot of people who are not in the medical community and some in the the actual medical community, they look at you and they say, you're a nurse, so you should just know this, you know, or you're a doctor, you should be able to do surgery. Well, you know, he could be a dermatologist. So, you know, he's not opening chest up if he's a dermatologist, you know, and it's like saying to a pilot, oh, well, you're an F-18 pilot, you should be able to fly a helicopter. Well, no, it's specific, right? So. That's the problem that we have, and we don't train people appropriately. So I walked away with that coming back here, and you know, anything I could get involved with that dealt with any type of flight medicine or you know, anything like that, where I could train people and tell them all my lessons learned, and you know, do whatever I could. That's that's what I did. And that's basically where you started creating the lesson plans or a, a training program, right? Is that where the genesis of this whole thing started? So I, I came back and I got, you know, after that I was assigned to back to Balboa in the ER and did my time in the ER again. Um, then I went back up to medical battalion. I was stationed there. So when I deployed with them, I was just an augmented individual, but this time I was actually stationed there and the commanding officer that was there, you know, ERC, what we call it in route care, um, was very up and coming. Everyone was very concerned about it, especially with the turn, um, to the Pacific, and having lo- you know, very long range uh, flights that we were looking at, um, he had said, you know, just train, start training our people the way you think they need to be trained. So I came up with something um, for me. It was just for our local people to get trained, and it kind of blew up. It's, it wasn't an official curriculum, and I actually had people calling me like, "What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> you can't certify anybody." I'm like, "I'm not certifying anybody." And the problem is, is that when you go to these medical battalions there's an expectation that you have certain amount of people that can do this job, right? Because if they get deployed, they have to be able to do this. Sure. But there really was no training that was set up for them. We do have a couple of formal schools like the joint and route care course. Um, We have the flight medic course that we were using as well down in Pensacola, but those were really difficult schools to get into because they weren't designed for the Marine Corps side of the house. So we were using, you know, seats that were available. And, you know, in the meantime, I still have people that have to deploy (laughs) and do this job. So, you know, my whole argument was I'm not sending people without training. So I'm going to I'm going to come up with training. I call it training. It's a segment training training for them, you know, so they're they've got something under their belt and they can, you know, do this job. Isn't that what any good leader would do? I mean, in this situation, as a leader, um, your job is to train your people. So it's not like a certification per se. It's just you making sure that they're the best qualified individuals for that situation. On the job training. Yes. What time frame was this? You was when I did this. Yeah. When when you when you was doing the started doing this training. I started that in 2017. Okay. What's what's the difference in how the role has changed over the the period of Afghanistan, for example? So I deployed to Afghanistan in two thousand and three, um, and you know we we went out as an EOD team, and we had no medics with us whatsoever, um, and there was a big accident, and six guys got killed. They got blown up um, trying to take a, a Swift to air missile apart. And so we ended up training. There was one guy who'd done a team medic course, and we ended up training ourselves um, and, and got a load of kit because it was we was better to be in that position than have you know be out on the ground as, as an EOD team with 
not a medic between us. Right. So um, flash forward 10 years and the medical advancements that have come through the Afghanistan conflict are huge, you know, in terms of critical care and, and things. So what what type of things have you seen within your role um, in terms of advancement? Well, I mean, definitely. So the other thing I do now um, in my retirement is I work for the Joint Trauma System, and that has become a very robust system as far as dictating a lot of um, how we do things as, as far as operational medicine goes. And one of the big committees out of there is the COTC, which is the committee on TCCC. And some of the big things they've done is now everybody is trained in TCCC. If you're a military member, you're going to have TCCC under your belt. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the big Stop the Bleed campaigns, I mean, those are real things, right? You're, most of these guys, and there was a big study done, you know, as far as preventable deaths. And one of the big things was people were bleeding to death. And those were survivable injuries for the most part. So, you know, having that training um, with tourniquets and, you know, being able to stop the bleeding right at the at the beginning, that's huge. And it's made a huge difference in, in that. Um, and a lot of the other stuff that we're doing, we're coming up with like the clinical practice guidelines for, for other things. There's the advanced resuscitative care for those that are getting pushed even further that are providers. So we have a lot of doctors and surgeons that were pushing further, you know, to the front, um, to do a lot of the advanced care stuff. So, uh, I would say the birth of that system is, is huge and it's, it's growing every day. So it's kind of that blend too, where I think that you've got the civilian population with EMT and, and, you know, medics and everything out here in the private sector. And then of course the, what's happened in Afghanistan, the merge of those things and the trauma and things that's happened. It's a community that is actually communicating and sharing that type of knowledge uh, that I think wasn't happening well before this. Yeah. And and one of the big things is coming up with standardized training too. And so we're, we're still really behind on it. I think the army, as far as like the, I I speak a lot about the flight stuff because that's sort of my area. Um, The army has been great with getting their guys certified in paramedic. Cause like I said, in that scenario, I had to get on the back of that helicopter because they weren't prepared to do that job. And I wasn't prepared to be on that helicopter. Yes, I knew the medical part, but I didn't know the crew part, which is huge, right? And, and being able to fly and protect myself even. So um, the Army went back and they made all of their flight medics, paramedics, and you know a lot of them are, and also the critical care part of it as well. The Air Force is doing the same. Uh, the Navy, we're still behind. So our search and rescue guys, I don't know if you've heard me talk about that a lot. <laughs> you know, our search and rescue medics, which community that I come from, we still think you don't need EMT. And so these guys are, they're training, right? They're, these guys are good. Don't get me wrong. I have served with some of the best star corpsmen today, but it's because they went on their own and got their own training because they knew they needed it. So oh gosh, that's terrible. And yes, the Navy's completely failed that system. The senior guys now who are very passionate about training are sending all their young guys out to get EMT trained, to get paramedic trained, but they're paying out of their pocket for their own training. So again, one of our big things with JTS is standardizing that, that type of training across the board. You know, if, if you're going to go and do this job, if you're going to be a flight medic, you're going to have the same protocols, the same, the same foundation training, same with it, the role too. So what, you know, what I did with the shock trauma platoon and the frisk, um, that's a role two entity, you know, but if you talk to a different role too. So we have many role twos. We have the ones with the Marine Corps. We have the ship role twos. We have the Army FSTs. We have Air Force. They got their stuff. If you talk to these different units, every one of them are doing something different for training. No standardization. <laughs> it shouldn't, it shouldn't, yeah. yeah it, sh- it shouldn't be unit or branch dependent. You know, at the end of the day, if you're giving care at the point of injury, the qualification should be whatever is appropriate for you to deliver that paramedic. Right. In, in all likelihood, so right. it, it it shouldn't matter whether you're army, marines, air corps, navy, whatever. The yes. you know the, the 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 care that you need to give is what dictates the qualification that you have. Exactly. I mean, there's an expectation with you guys when you're out there and you're putting yourself in danger that if you got hurt, that you're going to get someone to come get you that's got a certain amount of training, right? Yeah. Well, that was, doesn't always happen. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of scary. Yeah. You might get a you may get a kid who's just has never touched a patient in his life before. And that's the big thing with the paramedic part is that it has the clinical hours ingrained in those programs. So they have to touch patients. They have to, you know, treat actual patients under 
the guidance of a preceptor before they even go out there and meet their first patient. You know, the way our system signed or designed right now with the Navy is that these kids, their first patient or the first time they touch a patient might be their first patient by themselves with no preceptor ever. Mm, 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 so, you know, I'm sure the Navy's going to hate me right now, but that's <laughs> <We're>, yeah, <laughs> it seems to be said. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely going to come looking for you. Uh, no, but I think it's great. Because you actually posted on your retirement, one of your, I think it was your retirement post about the story of you being put in a similar situation and that that's kind of where you decided as a leader, you know, you'll never let that happen again. And I think by you calling it out now, it's something that needs to be exposed. There needs to be more oh. standardization. It, it should be the best patient care we can provide, you know, at that time. Absolutely. And that's, that's my whole thing. And I, I don't, you know, I, I really don't care who gets mad at this. This is, this is a problem and it needs to be said. And, um, you know, we, we just, we, again, you have an expectation, you know, your EOD or, you know, you're out there, whatever you're doing, you have that expectation that we know what we're doing when we come get you. You know, if you have a survivable injury, your expectation is that I'm going to be able to bring you home. And that's my expectation too. And it's not just on, you know, the system, you're putting that pressure on that provider for that person, right? So you got this young kid, he's like, I'm a corpsman, I'm supposed to save everybody, and we don't train them appropriately, and then we put them in this position, and somebody dies in their care. I mean, they're going to carry that the rest of their life, mm. right? <laughs> and they're going to blame themselves, and it's not their fault. This was a systematic problem. So yeah. that's and one that's, that's easily one that's easily corrected, and the fact that these individuals are seeing this as a a gap in their training and going out and pay for it is almost criminal in itself. I mean, you know, we have individuals that always want to strive to be better in their career field, and I understand sometimes the military is a little slow, but when you have a specific area like you're describing, a, a specific branch that just doesn't see the need or is behind the curve, hey, let's catch up. Let's let's get it where these guys are not having to go out and do it themselves. Themselves. Uh, when, when you were out there in Afghanistan and you saw some of this that's going on, what was one of the big things that you carried back that you felt like needed to be improved upon outside of just standardization? Was there something that you saw in terms of critical care um, and especially in major trauma that uh, could be improved upon? Well, I mean, the big thing is, is you know, it, it is the training. It's that critical care training because a lot of us, even as ICU new nurses, quote unquote, or ER nurses, we still don't get that, you know, a lot of that hands-on practice at, you know, in garrison in these hospitals, because we're not, you know, a lot of these places aren't designated trauma centers. So we're not able to see that. So um, one of the things, and, and, and part of what I think, you know, the military as a whole is trying to better is getting that experience, that trauma training. So we've, we're doing a lot of the civilian partnerships with some of the trauma centers, um, around the, the country to get our service members in there. But, you know, we still need more, uh, we need more of that. We need to have a better relationship with the civilian sector so we can get our guys out there training. You have to train as you fight, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got to be able to, you have to be around it. And one of the things I've always said is that you can't, you have to be able to treat a patient and know how they're going to react. If you're giving them a certain medication, you have to know what that patient's going to, you know, how they're going to react. And the only way to do that is to get the hands-on experience. You can't teach experience. I can put you in a, a simulator all day long and they have some pretty good sim men, you know, that are very realistic. But at the end of the day, I got to know how humans react to, you know, the interventions that we're doing. So um, one of the big gaps is that critical care medicine is, is, being better with that and, and learning more as we're shifting theaters too. Right. So Afghanistan, we were kind of spoiled. I mean, it was, you know, you called in a medevac, you were getting one fairly quickly and we had control over those areas. But nowadays, you know, we've got people that are operating in very large continents and, you know, long distances. And the big thing right now is that prolonged field care or austere medicine. So we're doing a lot of training with that and, you know, coming up with, with guidelines for that. But you know, if your guy, if you're, if you're out there, like you said, you don't have a medic out there sometimes. So now you're in the middle of, of Africa or something and yeah. one of your guys gets hurt. That's a survivable injury, but now you're going to have to sit on him, right? Or you. He's going to be a critical patient. Yeah. Or, or you. you, and you're, you're hoping that your buddy next to you, who's going to help hopefully save your life because you've received good training. Right. Right. 
But, you know, now it's not like, I'm going to call a medevac and someone, you know, I'm just going to stabilize you and I'm going to get that care. And now it's okay. I got to sit on them for, for three days. I mean, in the first couple of hours, it's critical. Yeah. The first couple of hours and a week having to sit on them. Yeah. To very, you know, now it's infection, you know, now it becomes, (laughs) this is where I help out a lot with a lot of these prolonged field care courses with some of the guys that brag and, you know, then it becomes a nursing thing. So now you have to. Yeah. care for your patient you have to you know they have to pee they got to go to the bathroom you got to clean them up you got to do oral care you got to you know reposition them you know if they're on a ventilator you got to take care of all of that so and and these guys aren't trained for that yet so yeah so what's the next big challenge for uh, for nikki i mean i know that you jumped out of planes uh you started doing <laughs> that you're flying helicopters uh you know you've you've accomplished everything so far of all the challenges in the past so what's the challenge now that you've got your eyes set on that you're going to want to tackle personal or professional or both i don't know i just maybe it's the diving that that's been an itch that i need to scratch yeah <laughs> i'm thinking I, about that a lot <laughs> you're in the perfect area for it of course there are a lot of uh, sharks out where you are but i mean you're in the perfect yeah. You're, you're in a perfect area. Uh, you've got a lot of guys, I'm sure, with SEAL background and uh, that's in that area that can certainly guide you and give you the best instruction to, to help you feel a lot better, you know, get rid of the anxiety. But something tells me once you did it, you'd be fine. You'd probably fall in love with it. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's, that seems to be the way I am. Is I, I just have to get myself over that, that hurdle to do it. And then I usually, like, oh, I want to do it again. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Nikki, and talking about not only your story, but some of the training and differences and things that we actually need to do, not only within the military, but each of the branches and service members themselves that go out and get the best training um, that you can get, whether it's, quite frankly, even your own money or whatever the case may be, because you never know if you're going to be put into a situation where you're going to have to save another person's life, God forbid, or if it's your life that somebody's having to save, and you certainly want to have... Uh, your, those people around you and yourself to have that type of best training. 